Uh, so here we go, here we go. Uh, let's pray. Our Savior Jesus Christ abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. Second Timothy 1.10 Almighty and everlasting God, comforter of the sorrowful and strength of the weary, may the prayers of all that call upon you in any trouble come into your presence that you may rejoice that in their necessity your mercy, your mercy has been with them. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, um, I'll just give you a little overview of what I said last week, and you who weren't here, bear with me. I, oh, by the way, I'm supposed to send this around. Oh, the other thing I'm supposed to do is take a collection for the outreach people. Can you, like, send a, You remember this? All the, the outreach people want all the Bible studies to take collection, and they, like, send it in different directions. So, you know, if you got an extra dollar change from Starbucks, you can drop it in, but don't feel any great press. This is just kind of a fun thing that all the other Bible studies apparently were doing, and we weren't. So, um, I suppose you better send a basket, unless you're just going to put it in your pockets and give it to me later. Yeah, got a hat in the back? Good, keep going, all right. Is it one of those kind of priest fedora things? Like, I've seen them. Really? Is it red? (laughs) All right, so uh, here we go. Um, As I said last week, you know, Pastor Gainick said to one of his friends, you know, we're off to do this thing on beauty and evil, which I found an interesting topic for a conference. And then he, he, he sort of said, uh, well, that seems a bit of a leisurely topic. Um, now, in one sense, you know, I can understand that. Actually, you remember the word scholarship, the Latin root for that, scolia, really does mean leisure. And one of the things I'm going to encourage you to do today is just ponder a bit. I think, I think you're all moving too fast. I read, I don't know if you saw this brilliant, there was a brilliant, there were, the, the last two Wall Street Journals have been crammed with stuff. We should just cancel the sermon to read the Wall Street Journal. Did you see the... Let's see, it was yesterday, Confession Makes a Comeback, and they cited the Missouri Senate. I didn't even know this. Did you know the Missouri Senate? You saw the article? Or you saw the, I, mean, I couldn't believe it. I, you know, the Missouri Senate passed a resolution. resolution in, in, I never heard anything about it, encouraging private confession this summer. And they cited the Missouri Senate, but they're talking about how priests are set up in malls. and you know, um, So, you know, that, that was brilliant. But there was also one about, about, uh, about Tiger Woods and this thing about how Everybody's sort of amazed that he's won, you know, 13 of his last 25 tournaments or something like that, which is, you know, 60%. And it was very interesting to, um, the takeaway from the article was the mental control of moving in slow motion. It was very interesting. They described his warm-up as only hitting a ball or two with each club and just rolling putts back and forth and walking very slowly after him. So while there's this frenzy around him, Everything else sort of goes still, which is very interesting because that, of course, is what the church has always meant by pondering, paying attention. So in one sense, you know, it is a leisurely pursuit. In another sense, it is the pursuit, uh, if you believe the scriptures. Uh, Well, first Aquinas, beauty is God and God is beauty. Okay? But that's just Aquinas. But then I, I give for you, in, on, your, on your handout, um, the be- let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, please establish the work of our hands. So beauty is this, nor- it's not a, I, won't, I won't say it's a normal way of speaking in Scripture, but it is a way that Scripture speaks about what happens. And where we want to go is this. I, I really think... Um, I, th- I think I told you last week I started growing roses a few years ago, not because I have any particular interest in, in dirt, but because 
they're a great defense against evil. Beauty is a great comfort, consolation in the face of evil. It is a great joy in the best of your days. It is something that engages you in ways that you can't speak about. Like, try to describe great music. At some point, the words fail. Try to describe great art. At some point, you can't communicate what it is. You simply have to see it. And in the same way, while we are Lutheran and we're very given to Scripture, and also uh, Lutherans were the first systematicians, we're very given to spelling out what we need, there is a point, perhaps it's too strong to say that words fail, but there is a point where there's another dimension that is wordless. And it really is, uh, or it should be, the church's business to create a place that is irresistibly inspiring. There are churches that you can walk into the world. In fact, I've never been to Hagia Sophia, which is um, the great, uh, now mosque, but was the great, you know, back in the good old days uh, when Constantinople was still Constantinople and was the center of the Christian world, at least one of the two centers, uh, Hagia Sophia, uh, the Church of Holy Wisdom was the place. It's now a mosque. It was converted into a mosque and is now a museum. But two of the brightest guys, the most spiritually mature guys I know, both of them, when they walked into it, were transformed into something other than they were before. In fact, one so fixed by it uh, (laughs) that he almost missed his ship. Uh, I mean, they, they were sailing without him, which is very strange talk for people who have seen everything and done, done everything. There is the ability of a place of art, of beauty, of music, of poetry uh, to console, to inspire, to move, to cement, to draw, to bless in ways that sometimes music can't. And so the church has always recognized that all senses should be engaged all the time. And, of course, a year from now, we're sort of meant to be across the street in the Bible church, and we have a bit of a blank slate. It's a square box. It'll just be emptied. And a very practical question for us is, what do we do? And so we don't have, you know, millions and millions of dollars. The first time we met with the architect, you know, he said, what would you like? And we said, something that looks like the Vatican. (laughs) (laughs) Then he he laughed and asked what the budget was. And then he sort of talked us down off of that. But, you know, the reality is um, there is a way that you walk into things, you see things uh, for the first time, and you're just... You're, you're dumbstruck. And you can be dumbstruck in the way of sadness. You can be dumbstruck in the way of joy. There's all these possibilities for things that are beautiful. And, and people, as you know, uh, disagree about beauty. And what I said last week was I wasn't going to sort of try to give you uh, a definition from Aristotle or Plato. In fact, not even from Thomas, at least not to begin. Um, because... Uh, you know, that's just strictly philosophical. I also am not going to engage the postmodern notion that beauty is wherever you find it, which sort of goes with you can do whatever you want. Okay, that's not it. So in this psalm, and we read the psalm kind of thoroughly last week, in the psalm, you remember that the word for beauty is also the word that's used for the presence of the Lord as a burning fire on the altar as it devours the sacrifice. You know, there's all kinds of stuff going on when that happens. That means real beauty 
is when God is present and you're drawn into that presence. And real beauty is when God is active for you, blessing you with all your senses. Okay, What you hear and what you smell, what you see and how you move. Everything. What you, what you hear with your brain and hear with your heart. Okay, so, and the church has had a long history in that. Occasionally there's been rebellion against it, but I think it might be valuable for us just to have a think about that. So I, uh, I sort of stopped. Uh, go to point three on the outline, okay? Just go to point three. You can, I read through all of these, but let me read the, the first one to you. You know, beauty is the confident gratitude that despite the evil challenges of life, which marks the servants of Yahweh who beg for music, for music, who beg for mercy and deliverance in piety and devotion. Or the second last one down, beauty is the visible salvation that's celebrated tangibly, visibly, sacramentally, beautifully. It's the spiritual and the physical, the human and the divine, all bundled together, singing the Lord's praises. Okay? So beauty in the first instance is a technical, it's a technical, uh, it's a technical, technical way to talk about God being here. And so um, I'll kind of be at point four. The beauty of the Lord our God descend on us. What the psalmist is begging is for God to be present. The beauty of the Lord our God descend on us, saying yes to the work of our hands, saying yes, approving and tending all the work we do. Okay, the point is that joy comes when God is present. And when God is present, everything is beautiful. And you remember then I sort of gave you the tagline of um, you who read Nowen, there's a, uh, the, the Saturday um, on the Eucharistic life, the thing that we were reading for elders on Friday morning. The, I don't know if you remember this, but there is a, there's a point in there where, where he says, he talks about finding beauty in strangers and beauty in what the world considers ugly. Okay? Or how does the church find beauty in that? How does, how does the church find beauty in, 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 in a man crucified on the cross. And that, that's been recognized in the church as the most sublime beauty, that is the deepest and most thorough kind of beauty, because it is the presence of God for us, and it engages every aspect of humanity. What you'll find, I think, is that this study is inexhaustible. And so we just want to play with it a little bit, but it's also the most practical of all things. Um, and I just want to see whether or not in the course of these things beauty can teach, beauty can comfort, beauty can draw you out of the depths. Beauty can push you places you uncomfortably go. Beauty can express to you things you've never thought about and give you experiences you can't describe. That, that's what should happen. So I give you um, then one of the traditional ways this has been done is by way of icons. And I give you um, the icon that you see before you, which is a very famous uh, icon of the Transfiguration. The Transfiguration is a regular, is a regular uh, iconic image, and the one that you have here is 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 a, is a very um, a very popular one. Has everybody got one? I got a I got a bunch more. Does anybody need one? Raise your hand, Cersei. We'll give it to you. There you go, my boy. Can you give those out? 
Okay, so I just, I tell you what, with one eye or with your eyes, just kind of look at the icon and with um, your ears, just kind of listen to me. Um, the Bible, and, and let me say first um, that I, uh, like so many other things, um, you know, I didn't learn all this at pastor school. So what happens then is that I become heavily indebted to people um, kind of outside my normal ken. Uh, for what I'm going to say today and, and for a few weeks into the future, I'm heavily indebted to Rowan Williams, who is now the Archbishop of Canterbury. He was my tutor long ago far away at Cambridge. He's written two very um, small volumes, uh, one called Ponder These Things on the Icons of the, of the, of the Blessed Mother, and one called... Um, title I can't remember because I didn't give you the notes. But uh, it's, there's a second volume on, on, ti- on, on uh, do you remember the title of this book? Ponder These Things is the, is the, what's the one on Mary then? No, they have two separate titles. I checked this morning. I got it wrong. I, so I should have given it to you. I'll show it to you. But I just, I want to suggest to you that I'm quite indebted to other people at this point because, you know, things you come to later in life, you just, it takes longer to figure them out. So, um, you know, there's less. So I, I don't want to take credit for things that aren't mine. So first, the Bible, as you recall, is very, um, very, very careful with images. Um, I don't necessarily want to make you spin around, but I just kind of want to remind you of uh, the very first commandment in Exodus 20. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of Egypt. You have no other gods before me. And then listen to this. You shall not make for yourself any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them and you shall not serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities upon the fathers of the children to the third and fourth generation. You learned that in catechism, right? So, so the Bible is very, very suspicious in the first analysis of graven images. In fact... Um, you remember from time to time, <clears throat> normally when idols or images were built, a church was not meant to house people. A church was meant to house the idol. And so when conquerors regularly overtook the Christians and entered their churches, they were stunned to find them empty. Right? In a pagan church, you'd have all sorts of idols and statues. In fact, you have regular occurrences in the Old Testament. You remember where they bowed down? Three men in the fiery furnace, you remember this? You bow down, build houses. So they, they, they thought they were non-believers. And Christians, of course, said, no, it's just that we, we believe something different. So the Bible is very careful. And it's, it's very careful um, so throughout the scriptures. Let me read to you from Isaiah. The man cuts down cedars. He chooses a home tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees, and then he plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for the man. He takes part of it, and he warms himself. He kindles a fire with it, and he bakes some bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire, Over the half, he eats the flesh and roasts the meat and is satisfied and warms himself. Aha, I'm warm, he says, I've seen a fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. And he prays to it and says, deliver me for you art my god. This is Isaiah 44. 
Okay, so in the first analysis, you should be very, very nervous, uh, as the church has regularly been, about um, anything that would portray God. The things you make, the works of your hands, can't save you or help you. But the church then said, well, that doesn't mean we couldn't ever possibly have that. And so by the 6th century, you have um, quite a profusion of Christian artwork. You remember, if you basically sort it out, uh, Christians are outlaws from 0 to 300. And from 300 to 600, uh, they just they take over the world. You know? And, and they're, they're, they're in everything, in art and in music, everywhere, in, in do and good. Well, um, by the 6th century, there are images that... Um, are everywhere. By the 8th century, there's a great rebellion. There's sometimes speculation that this came uh, with the rise of Islam, because, you know, Islam forbids uh, any images very directly. And um, the Christians might have felt a bit pressed, uh, as if somehow somebody else had something they didn't have, or they should sort of clean up their act a bit. And there was uh, a controversy in the church that sort of purged many of the great artworks, and also um, punished some people horribly uh, for producing them. So the church really had to figure out how is it that they, they feel about this. Um, you know, you can't make a picture of God. On the other hand, everything can be said two ways. You know, there's a gospel way of saying this. If you will, you're surrounded by icons every week. There's not, you know, an awful lot of difference between the victory window, which is, you know, extraordinarily popular here, and what the um, Greeks, for example, would mean by an icon. They light a candle before their icons. You light a candle before your window. Those, win- those, uh, those three on the wall on each side don't go with the altar. The altar's got its own on the night when he was betrayed. Oh, it's night. They've had candles. Those three are for something else, see? Orthodox do that. We do that. They venerate their icons. What was the number one thing when we said we want to move? What was the number one thing that you said? <laughs> well, it was the, it, by far, it was the victory window. The, the victory window or the donuts downstairs. The victory window. The victory window of the pastors. The victory window. The victory window or electricity and inside plumbing. The victory window. The victory window was all things, right? See, so, I mean, you have this in, this in you naturally, and I don't think when you come, I don't think you say, whoa, uh, look at this idol. You know, when, when we were in Notre Dame a few weeks ago, I was struck by, and um, it's, I was struck by it in one of the ways that I, I, I was struck by it in the way that, that I thought, I wonder if that would be helpful. It was very interesting to watch the priests. Um, they came before, and instead of simply bowing to the altar, which none of all of you do, and you don't think anything about it, they just they both very reverentially kissed the altar as if it was just part of what they did and moved on. And very, um, very, uh, you'll see Greeks who will kiss icons. And you'll also see uh, in the way that, uh, well, if you're a non-Greek, I would just suggest that you neither try to commune there or kiss their icons. Because um, soiled lips don't come to an icon, right? Now, why is that? And where's the line? And how much can you do? And is it helpful? So you just have to kind of think this through. Well, here was, here was kind of how the argument went. People said, uh, you know, God is divine. And anything, if you try to make a picture of him, you'll limit him. Okay, it's, just, it's a fairly simple argument and, and pretty true. God's divine, and if you try to make a picture of him, you'll limit him. So no pictures. 
And then the other side said, wait, wait. God is divine, but he took flesh in Jesus Christ. He was a human being just like us. He was just like us. So couldn't we possibly have a picture of him as a human? And the other side said, well, you couldn't possibly make a picture of him that could suit his divineness. In fact, if you try to do that, you're, you're separating his human from his divine. You can't express all the things that it is to be divine, so don't do it at all. That, that'll be the great heir of the Council of Chalcedon. You'll separate Jesus' his humanity from his divinity. Don't do it. Now, you can see there are good points on both sides. Obviously, you can't portray all that God is. On the other hand, to have a God, the, the great glory of Christianity is that the Word was made flesh, the same flesh that you and I have, not another kind of flesh, this kind of flesh. This is what he's got. And so then, uh, what won the day um, was uh, the sort of painting that was not, or the sort of iconography, or the sort of portraits that were not meant to be realistic or photographic or analytic. They were meant to be inspiring, presenting, delivering who Christ is. If we paint a picture of Jesus, we're not trying to show a humanity apart from divine life, but a humanity soaked through with divine life. The workings of God, the energy of God, to use a favorite word of the Eastern theologians, are all the time acting on and in the human nature of Jesus. You get this? You get this pulsing divine energy that's in him. He's got flesh, but it's always more than flesh. It's your flesh, but it's flesh energized by the divine. We don't depict just a slice of history when we depict Jesus. We show a life radiating the light and the force of God. And this also means that if we know what we're doing when we represent Jesus, if we approach the whole matter in prayer and adoration, the image that is made becomes in turn something that in its own way radiates this light and force. For Bob, Bob Williamson's sermon, um, the one thing I could, you know, there was a, I wrote 18 pages uh, for, for his sermon. And I, I, you know, you have to cut that down to about um, four or five. So I had about four funeral sermons for Bob. And uh, one of them was based on the window here, which now, if I use it for one of you, please don't think you're second best. It only just that you have ideas in a run and, you know. But when you look at the window, one of the interesting things about that window um, and partly this is why you normally face the church east, especially if you have a window, so that the first thing in the morning the sun comes through and radiates in the window. What you see in the window is all these little pieces put together as one. Like all you little people are put together as one. What you see in the window is the radiating energy of something larger than the window. Just as in the church, all you little people put together are filled with the radiance of Christ and become bigger than yourselves. That's part of the notion of, 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 of the way a window is put together. In the same way icons are like that, you just may not be quite as used to them. Um, icon is just the Greek word for image. You know, I-K-O-N. It's just, it just means image. Um, it's not a photo, though, and it's not a portrait. In the icon, what you see is human beings and situations are they are, 
as they're seen in the light of God's action. Okay? So people speak of an icon not as being painted, but as being written. And you don't see it, you read it. It's written by someone well-trained, and it's read by the faithful just the way you would read a Bible text. As I said last week, the icon is a window. It's not a mirror. In the East, remember, meditation is meant to empty you. In the West, meditation is meant to fill you. I I read sort of a a sad sort of article a few weeks ago by a Lutheran who very much wanted to embrace this but but missed the entire point. Uh, The the article said, look at the icon and think about yourself and your Christian life. No, 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 that couldn't be more wrong. That's to use the icon as a mirror. The icon is meant to be a window. It's meant to tell you what matters. It's meant to show you God at work. And so um, let, me just, let me just suggest that when you look at this, you know, what you're not looking for is, did Jesus really look like that? You really, if I could just encourage you, um, if you could come to it with prayer and with adoration. And obviously I'm not talking about adoring the piece of paper or adoring the wood that it's put on. You know, the icon that's up here was um, a gift to Pastor Nelson for his... Uh, Ordination, and we liked it, so we co-opted it. Uh, he hasn't gotten it back yet. But then he said, nobly, well, I love it very much in my office, but there's no I in the gospel. It's hard to, hard to find a better man than that. So I just now, without looking at your Bible, and just for a moment not looking at the icon, just tell me the story of the transfiguration very quickly in words. Tell me the story. If you're just going to tell me what I need to know in a couple of minutes about the Transfiguration, you remember the story we celebrated. Remember, it's always the Hinge Sunday. It, it separates Epiphany from Lent. As soon as Jesus goes up the mountain, then he comes back down. We've gone from Revelation to, to, to trundling toward the cross. Okay, so tell me about the Transfiguration. What happens? Remember? Oh, thank you so much. Come on. What, you can remember. What happens? What's he do? Be brave. Sorry? Yeah, he gets, his, he gets his threes together. He brings, his, he brings some disciples up. He leaves some disciples down. What else? Goes up the mountain, then what happens? What do you remember? Sorry? Yes, there's a change. Metamorphuo is the word, like mighty morphin power rangers. That's how you remember it. Same word, right? Morphology, morphing. He morphs, right? And then what happens? Remember? Big voice. Yes. Oh, Moses and Elijah, good. And then this is a big voice. Hey, this is my son, pay attention. And then the disciples come up with the brilliant phrase. Let's stick around a while. This is really beautiful. Let's just stay right here. Which, of course, is always a temptation of beautiful things. But you remember, um, while they do say, let's stick around a while, they also say, we were like dead men. Okay. Now, you can talk about it in that way, and, you know, you get a lot of data, but um, I wonder if you, when all that's said, if you really uh, can see what's going on here. So just kind of look at the picture now. Okay, now this is, and, you know, now I'm going to be the goofy teacher who says, there are no wrong answers. 
There are no stupid questions. Everybody knows there's wrong answers and stupid questions. I don't know why people always say that. Because, uh, <laughs> you know, <clears throat> everybody knows that. Come on. You know, who are we kidding? However, <clears throat> just have a look at this and just you tell me what you see. I mean, you will see different things. So just, just observe here. Okay, just tell me some stuff that you see. Please, be brave. Yes, please. Good, good. Oh, brilliantly, and he even gave me a little interpretation there. That actually is the classic sign for the Trinity. It's one above, it's the same one. It disappears behind him, comes down into a three-point, so you get a one and three type radiation behind there. Good, okay, so you do get a, you've got a burst, a star, a brightness, a color behind him, three down. Okay, keep going, what else? Kind of look at it, just what do you see, what do you notice? Yes, there's something, go- it's, it's too much to bear, and you, um, uh, Peter is always classically on the bottom left-hand side, and that's sort of classically his pose, and the hand up is interpreted in different ways, but it certainly means, that certainly means something like, there's just, I, uh, what, what's, go- what's happening, to, you know, and then classically John in the middle on an elbow, uh, head turned away, and then James on his back, almost rolling down the hill, right? Okay, good. So there's just too much to bear. What else do you notice? Anything? Yes, please. Yeah, there's an aura there. Um, I wish, you know, I, this is a really pretty good uh, color print, but uh, it almost looks like it's a, it's a brown into gold, doesn't it? But re- in reality, that's sort of uh, that, that's a, that's a red into blue. But it is though, and that's sort of tucked behind the star. So you've got a couple of those going on. Okay, what else have you got going? Look at Jesus' feet, for example. What do you notice about his feet? Sorry, go ahead. Be brave. It looks like he is walking, but. Uh, He's floating, yeah. His feet aren't on the ground, right? You see that? Now, it's hard to tell that because, you know what, you've got the circle and you've got the, 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 the thing coming down, but he's, he's actually floating, okay? Now, you know the story a little bit. Um, who are the two guys that are with him? Remember? Elijah and Elisha, good. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, Elijah is one. Who's the other one? Moses. Okay, now which is which? Can you kind of guess? Moses is what? Okay, you think he's on the left, you think he's on the right, so we'll probably have a voters meeting about this. Um, how would you know Moses if you saw him? Oh, he's got the, well, that's a bit of a Lutheran answer. He's got the law. Yes, good, thank you very much. He's got the book, at least. It is actually properly interpreted as the Decalogue. You're right. It is regularly seen as the Decalogue. But he's got the book in his hands. Okay. So now, and they, now, what's, what's different about them than the guys below? They are standing. And, and how, what's their posture like? How do you, they, 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 they do have their, good, that's very perceptive. They do have their eyes slightly tilted away. So they're not looking at him full face. But what? They're, they're, they're de- it could be deferential. Uh, it, could be, it could be bowing in. It also could be 
that they're attracted, you see, as opposed to the ones on the bottom that are repelled. Okay, so now what's the difference between um, what's the difference between the guys on the top and the guys on the bottom? Sorry? They're pure. Good. That's a good answer. That's a great answer. And there's a couple of reasons that they're pure. I'm coming to you. There's a couple of reasons that they're pure. Why are they pure? Ah. Well, he said they're dead, which is actually the first response. And actually, I didn't pick this up until I reread this. One of them's dead. No, Moses died, didn't get to see the promised land. They buried him where they couldn't find him, right? But Elijah never died. That's interesting. Okay. But they still both avert the rest. Carol, you were going to say? Yes, it does. And the longer you go in icons, especially after the 14th century, the bigger the chasm gets, the steeper the shelf. In fact, you have... In later icons, you have these guys not just kind of thrown back. You have them tumbling down the hill. They just, you know, they're every kind of which way. Of course, they always keep their order, Peter and John and James. But they're, they're always, it's almost like, you know, they just, it just gets worse and worse for them. All right. Anything else you got going there? Is in the, he's in the blues. I don't know the answer. But while you're pressing there, I don't know. You know, here's the thing. I mean, this is part of the thing is um, what I've discovered is, is how much I don't know. You know, once again, unfortunately, because, uh, you know, life's short and there's a lot to learn. Um, somebody's thinking something, and I don't know what the answer is, but I just want you to observe one other thing while you've got there. What do you notice about their robes? Sorry? About their robes, I'm sorry. They're glowing. You know, the architectural training, it's funny, and I mean this seriously, it really comes out. Your eye for detail, it's like, wow, that's so cool. I mean, you're trained to see. Which is? Well, let's do one thing at a time, though, because we'll get going too fast, okay? Because you're right, there is overall composition we've got to talk about. But their robes are glowing. What does that, begin to think about what that means. What would it mean that their robes are glowing? What does that mean? There's a, yeah, there's a source of light, although, uh, yeah, there's a, it would just sort of leave that. There's a source of light, but in the early church, they argue that this is not a light like anything you can imagine. It's neither um, material or spiritual. It's an otherly kind of light, and they live, this is the big bit, they live in its reflection. You see this? So they, they, they're drawn in, they're bowed down, they're pulled close, they have to avert, and yet they live by it. Now, you should be getting to hear, this is a description of the Christian life. This is no different than you coming to the altar. You're bowed down, you're pulled in, you avert your eyes. It's more than you can comprehend, but you live by it. See, this is your story. Okay, the overall composition. Uh, maybe you can explain this better than me. Go ahead. Just uh, consistent with the story, very obviously, but the uh, disciples are at the bottom of the picture. Right. Expresses the idea of order and 
Well done. There's also one other thing which um, I thought you were going to say, but I, uh, it's, it's okay because it's not, it's not always, uh, you can probably explain this better than I. But in, when you normally look at a paint, uh, when you look at a normal, if you go outside today and you're going to take a picture, um, are the things far away, are they big or are they small? Small. If you paint a picture, if you go to a museum, when people normally paint a landscape, in the background, are things big or are they small? It does somewhat, but classically, landscape portrait, any sort of realistic sort of painting, normally what happens? Big stuff? It's, if you, it's, it's, it's like this, and it converges, gets small back over there. Which is how the icon is, which makes the point converge on your eye. You notice how the guys in the background, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, are bigger than the guys in the foreground. Isn't that crazy? This will take a little bit to work on, but it's an upside-down perspective that makes you feel as if, it's meant to make you feel as if you're inside the picture. Okay, It sort of wraps around you. Yes, please. It's like what? Right, you're, you're sort of pulled into this. Mary Lee, you are going to say something? You know what? I couldn't read it this morning, to be honest with you. And I looked in the book, and I still couldn't read it. So I've got to find it for next week. I looked around. I couldn't. It's too chipped off. I can't read what it is. But I'll, I'll figure it out for you, okay? Okay, now we're almost at time. But I just, I just want to, I just, here's what I want you to just look at, okay? Just, I just want you to look for this for next week. And if I assigned you to look at this, in prayer and adoration, in the way that I would say to you, I wonder if you could hear it in the same way. If I say that to you, I think it might sound odd to you, but if I said to you, go home and read the Transfiguration story every day so we can really get a go at it next week, I think you'd say, sure, I'll go home and have a go at that. But if I say to you, spend five minutes or ten minutes every day this week with this, I I wonder how you'd hear that. I wonder if you can just hear it in this way, that this tells the story and I'll just say it this strongly, as much as Scripture tells the story, or this tells the Scripture story. Look at this. Here's Jesus in his pure white robes. I'm going to just hit some, This doesn't have to be all there is, but just kind of look at this. He's in his pure white robes, and his feet aren't touching the ground. Normal people's feet touch the ground. His, his, his feet don't touch the ground. It's set always against these deep colors. It's normally reds and blues. You normally have a surrounding gold, but the gold sets off the reds and the blues, and the reds and the blues are meant to suggest that Jesus comes out some, some place you know not what it is, this immeasurable depth. It almost always gets dark behind him, and then he springs out with this light. And it's Jesus. Uh, you, you remember when Jesus says in Mark 1.30, he says, he says, this is the reason I, and then they make a big deal out of this, come out. This is why I came out. And then, of course, the obvious question is, came out from where? And then the answer is, from where you can't even describe where light isn't even the light that you know. It is a light that is something completely different than you could ever imagine. Jesus says in John 16, I come out of the depths of the fathers. When they read this, they're like, this, they said, this is it. He, he comes from a place we know not where. And yet he comes to be one like us. So you have Moses on the right and you have Elijah on the left and Peter is covering his face and John crouches on his knees and James is flat on his back and it's as, if, it's as if Jesus is this tidal wave. He rolls out of this from nothingness. And suddenly, he's among you. And he's among you in a way that would destroy you if it wasn't merciful. 
It, it sort of casts you down and draws you in all at the same time. That's how holiness is for sinners. You see, it draws us. It's what we want. It's the only thing that would satisfy us. And yet when we get near it, too near it, if we look it in the face, it destroys us. No one sees God face to face and lives. So how do you, how do you express that? You express it by showing how people come near, and yet they're always dependent. His light is reflected in their robes. They wear a nimbus, just like he does. They're lit by his light. That's how you can tell the saints. The, the, the ones who haven't died don't have that yet. And he makes, if you will, a mockery of our time. Normally we have people who are dead and people who are alive and they go through history chronologically. We've got a live guy who never died and a dead guy who's come back to life and three guys who think they're dead but are really alive but maybe wish they were dead but later wish they were alive. I mean, so this confuses us. And more than that, if you really pay attention to the text, Matthew and Mark start the story by saying, after six days... And if, ever, if you hear the story after six days, you automatically think creation. After six days, what? The Lord rested with his people and all was well. In Luke's gospel, it says after eight days. And of course, the eighth day is Easter, the new creation. Eight sides on the font. Circumcise your kids on the eighth day. Eight people in Noah's ark. The eighth day is the day that you live. And see, all of this is jammed into this icon. When you look at this, any particular part of it um, can, you know, have a go at you. So there is the chance, uh, as you attend this, that your life can take on a different meaning. That you actually see, let's say if you, if you got up in the morning, instead of saying your prayers, you just looked at this, and all the things that you now heard came true. Christ is present to me. He's present in a way that's incomprehensible. He's present uh, in a way that even time can't comprehend. He's present to live people, present to dead people. Yet he's present to me without destroying me. And he sends me on my way uh, to live out my day, knowing all of those things. Um, I wonder if you'd be different. Have a think through. Um, this is the reason why people treat icons reverentially, because they... Do, they they draw you into the presence of Christ. They're not Christ, but they draw you into his presence and they deliver good gifts. And frankly, when you start to see that, and I'm not just talking on days like this when you may feel completely normal, but in your worst days, you know, on your worst days, there is something about being in the dark in a cathedral with a candle lit where Christ is present. And on your best days, this is as good as it can get. All the dead people and all the live people and all the saints drawn together and continually drawing into the, drawn into the divine life, which is inexpressible. One thing after another after another and always in the company of Christ. So always warm and safe and dry and always beautiful. See, that's it. Just have a think. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about this next week, about how that might change your life and what that might mean. So I'm going to, what, next week what I'm going to look at is the ethical dimension, dimensions 
This is, this is sort of the, the, the theological dimensions. Next thing I want to look at the ethical dimensions of an icon, how this might actually change your life in practice. Anyway, um, thanks for that, uh, and we'll just kind of see what happens. Uh, let's pray and let's go. Lord, remember us in your kingdom. Teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. See ya.